you do need some sort of willful ignorance and unrealistic optimism to start your own company. I tell people now, it's like, if you're ready to start a company and you want to try it, like, yes, do make a good plan, but you can't plan forever. You feel it and you're going to go and you're going to do it because you've just got this stubborn optimism that you're going to make it work when everybody else won't. And part of this is like, to me, like that my version of overcoming that is saying, look, by the odds, I should be an addict, dead, or back in prison. I can't even remove the first one. I should be dead or back in prison if I played the odds, right? And I'm going to beat those two. So why can't I beat the same better odds, still bad, of, of having a successful company? You know, that's my optimism, right? And I am optimistic. Hey, folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast that spotlights the inspiring stories of America's brightest sustainable business leaders. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Gibbs Dabney, the founder and CEO of Lives in Designs. Lives in is a disruptive outdoor apparel company that speaks to the growing number of conservationally minded consumers, particularly folks passionate about the great outdoors. Andrew has perfected a product line that blends sustainability and quality, making it the ideal clothing brand for those of us who wish to live our life to its fullest. This is going to be a little bit of a special episode, as Andrew can't explain his entrepreneurial success without taking some time to talk about his history of addiction and how this difficult period helped form his boundless optimism and resilience. So I'm going to let him tell his story for the first 10 minutes, and then we'll return to the normal format shortly after that. Thank you again for doing this. I'm really excited to have a conversation. You've got an incredibly inspiring story that starts with challenges and and then overcomes some some powerful stuff. And so I wanted to see if you would indulge us by giving us a little bit about you and, and your early days. Absolutely. I was born in New Orleans. I was born with club feet. And it was a severe case of club feet where instead of just being turned inwards, they were actually turned so far that they were facing backwards. And what that meant was I had to have surgery, my first one at two weeks old, and I continued to have surgeries roughly every year and a half until I was 12. So eight surgeries on my left foot, seven on both. Wow. You know, to me as a little kid, obviously I didn't remember the first one. Um, but as I was growing up, these things weren't, didn't seem abnormal. You just know that right now you're in the hospital and you're eating lots of jello and then um, you leave in a cast and I'd, I'd try to deal with that. And after that, I was back at the park. I was riding my bike and, and hanging out, climbing up on the jungle gym and, and doing all that. I was, I was a kid. We lived by a, a very large park in, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I was that kid that went out after I got back from school and my parents would yell out the front door and say, dinner's ready. And I'd come back, eat dinner real fast and go back outside. <laughs> um, now, looking back on it, I think I think it helps build a, a personality of resilience. Sure. And the other things that it did was expose me to opiates from nearly birth. Every uh, surgery came with you know, IVs of morphine and things like that. I distinctly remember being in one of my last surgeries, having a button that I could click and it would, you would send more morphine. Obviously it was limited, Yeah. but, uh, I remember clicking it a lot at the time. I wasn't like feeling like I'm going to get high. It was just knowing that that made me feel good. It yeah. solved the pain. And so fast forward a little bit, I went to high school in Fort Smith, Arkansas, had a pretty, pretty normal high school, pretty normal upbringing. Right. Um, did experiment during that time though. So, you know, 
kept it pretty safe. I, I smoked some weed. I, I did magic mushrooms. Yeah. Um, that was kind of my drug experience. Went to freshman year at U of A, University of Arkansas, and took that too far. So, you know, instead of being studious and concentrating on being the best, I was a philosophy major after the, after at least the first semester, I took the alternate path, which was, you know, partying and experimentation. Yeah. And that's where my paths crossed with opiates one more time. It was immediately comfortable. Physical ailments kind of blended away, right? All these things, I'm not trying to glorify it. It just is what it is. The first time, if you're, if you have an affinity to that, first time you try it, you feel good. And that's what, that's the dangerous part. Right. So recreational use went to habitual use pretty fast weekend parties to killing a hangover the next day to now I can't eat breakfast without it. That's the scary part of opiates. You know, you get to that physical addiction very, very fast. Psychologically or not, you get to the point where you can't sleep, you can't eat, you can't study. So I have incredible privilege to um, be living in a house that my father owned. Um, So I had a place to live. I had a credit card. I could buy food and gas, but I had a drug habit that was anywhere from 200 to $500 a day. Wow. You know, what comes along with that is, is obviously selling drugs. It's pawning everything I own. It's just, you know, doing everything, can, borrowing money, everything, but ripping off my friends. I, I didn't do that. And I never was inherently habitually dishonest, but it was a lot of, Hey, could I borrow, you know, a hundred dollars? I'll pay you back at the end of the week. And I knew that I would somehow, but the, the problem was like, I didn't know how. Yeah. And this led me to a point where I was owing a lot of money to people that you shouldn't owe money to. And in that, in that headspace, in this, in this personal turmoil, I robbed a liquor store in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I have very little recollection of doing this. I have very little recollection of the thought process leading up to it. And it was incredibly amateur. I think I said, please, it was nonviolent. I was in there for like 15 minutes. Like it was just all these things that screamed, like, this is not my natural state. Yeah. And Obviously, I got caught, right? Like, it's not even like I was a good criminal. <laughs> I was just a bad, I was bad at all of this. Right. And after that, I actually went camping. My, my, my passion and still is, and back then was outdoors. I like to be camping, I like to hike, I like to ride my mountain bike, I like to be outside. And so, I, with the money I had, I, I bought as much drugs as I could and I went to the woods. I went to go camping. And I was planning on staying out there for a couple of days. I still had cell service in this spot. And a friend called me and said, Hey, did you rob a liquor store? And this is maybe illustrates the mind space at that time. I said, no. <laughs> and I believed it yeah. in that moment. I had forgotten what I had done. Um, then it all came back to me and I realized the gravity a little bit right then as much as I could in that space, came back into town, went into the police station the next morning and said, Hey, I want him here to clear this up. Right. Like I wasn't coming to say, Hey, I did this cuff me. It was here to clear this up. Let's, let's see what's going on. And later on that day, my house was raided. Uh, I was taken to jail, you know, full on body armor, shotguns, everything. Yeah, I was taken to jail and was there for, I want to say three days. It felt like a lifetime. My family, when they got the call, they weren't, let's go bail them out today. It was, no, let's, he can stay there, right? He can feel this. And being in jail is hard enough. I was in jail going cold turkey off of of years of of heavy OPDs. So I was in a bad spot. I went straight from there to a 90 day, like an inpatient rehab down in Austin. Once again, there's privilege baked in the story that I don't want to yeah. ignore. I just want to acknowledge it. It's not the whole story. It's not why I'm here today, but it, you know, I was able to go to a good rehab. And in that rehab, I did the work. Notably, I, I didn't do a medicated detox. I figured I was three days in. Just keep going. It couldn't get any worse. Just yeah. keep it going. They give you the option to kind of do like a two week detox when you go in. 
I said, no, I want to feel this. And that was intentional. That was a clarity of thought where I was like, I need to know what the full extent of what this does to me physically. Yeah. And that was illuminating. And I still remember that. It's still crucial to my sobriety today. Never going down the opiate path again, like is it took me two weeks to feel like a human. It was 110 degrees, 114 degrees that summer in 2011 in Austin. There was wildfires. The air was filled with smoke. I was shivering. I was outside cold. I wasn't sleeping. You know, I couldn't even use the bathroom, right? Like my body did not know what to do without this substance. So I was there for three months. I got back out. I lived in a sober house for a little bit in Austin just to make sure I transitioned mm-hmm. well. But then I had to go back to Arkansas and, and face the face the legal yeah. system. Because I had done so much community service and proved my seriousness about getting sober, because it was a first offense and because of a lot of my community and, and friends and family had written letters on my behalf and, and you know reached out and tried to help this process, I was able to get my charge plead from an aggravated robbery, which is a 40 to life. This whole time that I was in that process, I, I thought I was going to yeah. do a minimum sentence of 40 years, which if you're in good behavior in Arkansas, that means eight years locked up. So I was like, I was going through the thought process of what am I going to do with my life when I get back out in my thirties? Cause I was 23 yeah. this time. And so I did the theft of property plea. I accepted that it came with a it's 20 year prison sentence, but at 10 was suspended. And basically I was at the max guidelines to be able to do early release through a military style boot camp. So I went through a military boot camp, Arkansas department of corrections, ended up being in jail for about three months, general population prison for about a week or two. And then into this, boot camp program, still in prison, but like in a camp kind of adjacent to the main building. 105 days of that, which was not a cakewalk. Yeah. It was basically all the negative sides of boot camp without any of the training and useful yeah. skills and teamwork. It's just drill and getting yelled at and being demeaned. I uh, was released roughly a year later from the crime, had to rebuild my life and knew that I was going to. You know, when you're locked up, when you're, when have all your physical possessions taken away, All you're left with are your relationships and your memories and your aspirations. The things that make you, you aren't the things you own. It's what's in here. And that became very clear to me. You can't lock up someone's mind. You put them in a cage, but you can't lock up their head. And so that plus I knew that I wanted to do something with my life. I knew that I have, like I said, that this privilege of of, of the ability to get things done. I, I I have ambitions. I have people that can help me. I have something I want to say in the world and a point of view that I wanted to get out there. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew that doing drugs and not doing anything wasn't going to help that. So I was going to rebuild. I wanted to get back into university of Arkansas, but I couldn't because I've been dismissed. So I went to the community college made, I think nearly straight A's. I think I got like a B applied and went in front of committee and got back in the university of Arkansas. And while I was doing that, some friends of mine had a, had a very successful kind of local regional lifestyle company, like a bear apparel. So a yeah. brand, And I started working for them and I was doing like warehousing and logistics and I became full-time and I realized I wasn't going to be able to finish my undergrad full-time, but I still wanted to. So I enrolled in a night school management program from another university, a four-year degree where I could work a management role, but also learn management theory. So I graduated with an organizational management degree from John Brown University while I was working in kind of operations at this apparel company. During that time, I went from warehouse fulfillment to COO of the company, kind of running all the moving parts to CEO of the company. There's about 20, 20, 25 people at any given time, multiple sales channels, outlets, apparel, supply chain, all this stuff. So I learned all of this, which was fascinating to me. I love apparel. and I love the outdoors. And it was the intersection of these two things. 
while I was there, I got married to my wife. We bought our first house and fast forward a little bit. Now I've started my own company that is obviously still still in its early stages, but is you know leading to success. And a lot of it is built on those values that I developed through this process. And we've had two kids. I've got two boys, one's three, one's you know, one, one and a half. And we're just we're just building this life. The thing that I've wanted to do, I'm yeah. doing. The goals that I set through that are the things that I'm doing today. And I'm not done. And I'm getting more comfortable telling this story. This has not been something that's really been that yeah. public until really about six months ago. So brings us to now. I'm haunted by the picture you paint of those kind of hardest days of, of detox. And I'm wondering, it may be hard to point to, but is there any particular reason you think you chose the hard path, you know, not didn't choose what some would consider the easy path of, of a medicated detox. I wanted to make sure I was at rock bottom. Wow. That was it. Like, you know, I just, I, I knew that I screwed up, right? I knew that I had taken this addiction to the point where it had led me to do something that I would never consider doing Yeah, in a rational sober mind. And that alone was terrifying, but I wanted to make sure I had a, physical manifestation of that obviously like as i wasn't really incapable of that kind of emotional like processing at the point but i was capable of saying like i'm gonna feel this pain because i can you can remember pain maybe maybe you can't remember the way it felt but you can remember the way you felt when you were feeling it that was a weird distinction but my point is like i wanted to layer on yeah the proof to myself that this is somewhere that i could be again and i need to i need to work every day to not Either. It's in, it's interesting to hear you say that because it's and especially in contrast to hearing you talk about childhood and and the surgeries and the deployment of of drugs to alleviate the pain and here you are twenty some years later seeking that pain in order to get off those drugs it's a it's an interesting contrast so. I can think of a million ways that this builds your character and your resiliency and um, it sets the stage for a successful uh, entry into entrepreneurship. One other thing before we get there, which is, you know, we talked about the low point and you talk about knowing that you wanted this grand life, this, this real life, the, the family, the kids, the house, the job, the career, but you didn't know what it was. You just knew that you had, you wanted that aspiration, right? How do you identify that kind of aspiration when so stuff is so tough? I don't know. Since as long as I can remember making wishes, I wished for the same thing. And it's always been, I wish to have an amazing life. Yeah. As I get older, I think I found myself inserting, I wish to have a long, amazing life. It's almost like a mantra that I've, that I've told myself over and over again. I'm not worried about, I want you know a new bike. I'll figure that part out. But I want this amazing life. And what that means is it can be different at any given time. But to me, it's this, it's this yeah. life that I'm doing something fulfilling. I'm making some positive impact on the world. I'm a good friend. I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I'm a good, you know, I'm good at these things, right? Like, and that's just the, the, the North star, I guess. Yeah. So you make your way into the working world and clearly prove an aptitude for business and, and logistics and operations. There's still a pretty big, I think, leap from that into okay, let's go do it. I'm ready to do this on my own. And part of that is courage or suspended disbelief that, you know, or not knowing what you don't know and not being afraid of, you know, of what the real world looks like. But I'm curious how you overcame the 
what most people are too afraid to do, which is leaving a comfortable job and starting a thing. So I think you said something interesting there, which is which is actually fairly crucial and people don't want to talk about. It. You do need some sort of willful ignorance and unrealistic optimism to start your own company, right? Like yeah. I tell people now, it's like if you're ready to start a company and you want to try it, make a good plan, but you can't plan forever. You feel it and you're going to go and you're going to do it because you've just got this stubborn optimism that you're going to make it work when everybody else won't. And part of this is like, to me, like that my version of overcoming that is saying, look, by the odds, I should be an addict, dead, or back in prison. I can't even remove the first one. I should be dead or back in prison if I played the odds, right? And I'm, I beat those two. Sure. So why can't I beat the same better odds, still bad, of, of having a successful company? You know, that's my that's my optimism, right? And I am optimistic. So the leap. So I wasn't necessarily looking to leave the company that I was at. I did leave voluntarily. There was a there was a shift in strategy, a shift in management, a shift in the way the company was gonna go and the people that were gonna do it. And I was I was tasked with executing that. And that weighed heavily on me. That involved laying people off, that involved changing strategy that I had set and dismantling a team that I had that I had helped build. And I wasn't on on board. So my message was, you know, I'll help you do this. Uh, I'll give you a six months basically notice, but I, you know, at the new year, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move on. And so I did, and I didn't have another step yeah. in mind, but it's funny looking back at, you know, I remember one of the employee reviews I did while I was like COO before I was CEO of the company. And it was, what do you want the most? Like, what's your biggest ambition? And, and I wrote on that. I want to run a whole company. I felt like I was, I had some knack for management of people. I had this, epi- not epiphany, but this like change of, of understanding of myself while I was in rehab because we did this like monthly voting for rehab president, like your president of it's like student council, right. But for the people in rehab and I got voted as president by the peers and without like, you know, any, any campaigning or anything like that, they just chose me. And at that point I was like, I was taken aback. I was like, why, why would y'all choose me? And I realized, okay, maybe I am worthy. Maybe some, some people see something in me, that I don't see in myself. And I think that that kind of did flip a switch in the way that I think about the value that I can bring to other people back then. Yeah. So it's a long way of saying when I left, I actually took a, a job as a CMO of, a, of an early funded tech company and um, was there for about three months and was just long enough to realize I didn't want to be a CMO and I did never wanted to work in the tech industry ever again. <laughs> okay. Like I, the outdoor industry is like full of people that are good natured, love to be outside. Like, you know, have a beer, yeah. go float, you know, whatever, you know, just build great things that are non-harmful to the environment. And so I, I put down a bunch of thoughts um, while working at this last company. We talked a lot about sustainability. We talked a lot about what a good company does, what kind of, you know, how you treat your employees, how to, how to build something positive in the world. And so my chip on my shoulder that I wanted to address was I want to make a good company because of the products that we make. Not like... Yeah. We make yeah, something so we should we should pay penance. It's like, no, I want to build products that are that are differentiated that solve a that solve a problem for people last a long time. And yeah. With my own personal interest in like kind of fashion and apparel and outdoors and then experience having actually just done all this stuff in real life, like getting an MBA in small business brand development. I was like, I can I can put this to work. Uh, I started writing first. I wrote this kind of two part series on what sustainability actually means which I still stand by today, five years later, yeah. like it, we, we hit on this idea that sustainability is a product that's durable and works in more scenarios so that you can wear it more and keep it longer. Like yeah. all of the things aside, we do use organic cotton. We use recycled polyester. We have no packaging, all this kind of stuff. Like that's all 
second level order to does it last a long time? Does it work well? You want to keep yeah. it, right? And so I had these ideas before I even had the products. So I wrote all that down. I started searching for, I wrote in the values and the principles that are still up there today. And I started searching for a brand name. And that's the hardest part to be very frank. That's it's my next like, question. Everything's it... taken, right? If you have a good idea, yeah. it's almost done it, right? Like it's a lot of people in the world. There's been a lot of businesses. And you can't be like mountain works. Like someone's done that. <laughs> um, so I started looking for for foreign language words that didn't have an uh, English counterpart. Set of parameters that you started with, like any word, or was it words that have um, in certain genres or verbs because you wanted something that indicated movement or action, or was it just any word? Not necessarily, just any word. I was kind of, okay. I was kind of just like look, I was throwing throwing stuff at the wall, you know. And, yeah. I, and I found this word. It's it's pronounced more like lives nutare and li- like uh, it's lives in jutare in, in Swedish. And it means one who lives life fully, one who lives life to ex- extreme. Like there's a French word for it. It's a bon vivant, you know, and sure. uh, though there's not an, there's not an English word for it. And it crystallizes right there. It's like, that is the person that's going to value the things that I'm talking about. The person that's trying to go out there and live life for the experience of living life. And what are they wearing? Right? Like, that's what I want to make. And that's all these values yeah. that I'd written down, which is like literally experiences before stuff doesn't actually mean that stuff isn't important i i like nice things i like things that are well built and i think i think that that is valid and it's part of my expression of myself and so this person who wants to live this experience for life is wearing and buying and owning and surrounded by things that are intentional and well built and serve that life and to me that life is outdoors so we're building those kind of products for people that want to spend time outside i love the name so much i love the process that you went through so much so You've got the product idea, you've got the name, and you launch a Kickstarter. So why was Kickstarter your first first path for funding? So I had been through a, a situation with another brand where we were, we, were, we were starting from scratch. So that means we had to do like stickers and t-shirts and hats from off-the-shelf blanks and try to build a brand at a small scale and kind of work our way to building great products, right? Just yep, the yep. things that we did. I knew that I didn't want to do that. I wanted to come to the market with products that were at the level of quality, design, and price point that was going to support the business going forward. Because I didn't want to shift. I didn't want to shift from t-shirts to pants or t- you know that kind of thing. And there's there's not very many ways to do that that are capital efficient. So I had raised a little bit of money from friends and family that was literally just like a year of living expenses and some travel um, in exchange for equity in the business to start this thing. But we didn't have nearly enough. We didn't have money for inventory. Sure. They didn't have enough money to hit minimums at our supplier. And so Kickstarter was the most viable path to bring something to life like that. You know, if you make a good case, that's going to get us our down payment for our inventory. Right. And so it was always going to be Kickstarter for me. Yeah. In terms of like walk us through kind of your products themselves. It's, it's I think, a very deliberate line. So let's hear kind of how you got to the actual product uh, lineup itself and, and a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's 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 both intentional and deliberate, and also not as clean as that. So when we launched, when I started design, I had designed a shirt, a long sleeve shirt that literally does not exist still. Um, I designed a pullover sweatshirt, like a workwear jacket, a fleece pullover, a shell, all of these things that you still don't see today. But I really wanted some pants that were like somewhere between like a Carhartt. And like a like a like a Patagonia pan or North Face and or like you know like a like a better fitting mountain khaki. These are some of the brands that were like just you know were and still are pretty dominant in the in this category. 
but I wanted it to fit a little different. I wanted it to not look so technical. I wanted it to be more natural looking, more workwear inspired, more kind of rugged and less gorpy, which is like, you know, the term for outdoor stuff. It's good old raisins and peanuts, I think. Trail mix. So like I had this thing, I just kind of made those for myself. And the first Kickstarter, if you go look back, was two products. It was a fleece called the high wool fleece and then the pants. And if you look at it, like 75% of that campaign is dedicated to that fleece. Yeah. Not the pants. But I kind of made the pants for me. What interestingly happened is we outsold pants to fleeces like three to one. The market said, Yeah, the fleece looks nice, but it was clear that there was more need for pants. Yeah. And what I wanted in my pair of pants that didn't exist, other people wanted in theirs. And um, so fast forward a little bit, early 2019, we were just about to fulfill all those orders from that last fall Kickstarter. And I was going through Techstars, a business accelerator for tech companies. So we're like one of only two apparel companies that have ever gone through Techstars, which is like nice. thousands of companies. And while I was there, he he kind of challenged me. One of the, the managing directors said, like, why are you making all of this stuff? You don't have any money. <laughs> how are you going to buy it? Like, how are you going to market it? Like, it's just you. You've got these pants. Why don't you just make those like the best pants in the entire world? And I had this design kind of principle that was like this iterative thing that focuses on one thing till it's right. Right. And he's like, well, this is isn't this one of your values to like to do this. And I was like, well, screw you. Don't throw my values back <laughs> at me. But, you, but, but you're right. You know, he was right. And so we said, we're not going to buy that fleece again. We're not even going to work on making it better. I'm going to put all my energy into making the best pair of pants I can. So we did like a customer discovery process with all of our backers, 600 people from our first campaign and asked them what could be better. And so we took that feedback and, and mainly it was fit. <laughs> and we had this like tiny, tiny, tiny little like knife pocket that was like sized for the little Kershaw, barely tiny knife that I carried. And I was like, Oh, most people don't carry like a child size <laughs> knife, not the children to play with knives. So we made them better and launched a V2 campaign that summer. So version two, just the pants, another Kickstarter. And it was one product that was simpler. Yeah. and was actually profitable as a campaign goes. And it showed that there was more demand for yeah. this. From then we said, okay, we have a kind of a cotton-based canvas pant. That's great. But there are some use cases where in the outdoor industry, at least, you know, outdoor recreation world where you need a fully synthetic option without cotton in it. Cause you're going to get wet. You're going to get cold. You need to dry out fast. You'd be on a river, all these things, right? The cotton's not the best for it. And so we said, let's design that. Let's build it off the silhouette and everything we've learned from yeah. our canvas line. Let's build it a little bit more technical out of a really, find a really great textile that still has a natural kind of feel and drape and look. Cause that's important to me. I don't like shiny clothes and do another Kickstarter. Let's launch our second product. That campaign, we went up to it very intentionally. We, we got a much better marketing firm. We started way before we really positioned the pants. They were also kind of more Kickstarter-y, yeah. like four-way stretch, you know, water-resistant, all these things. And the cool thing was they were make, they're still are. They're made from recycled fishing buoys. So the plastic comes from old fishing buoys that is turned into new nylon. Now, I love that story. So it did half a million. So we did $515,000 in sales for that one in 30 wow. days. And that struck a chord, much more press attention, sure. more everything. And some more financing. We raised some more angel investment. You know, we're not venture backed. We're backed by some really good people that live in our yeah. that live in our area that want to see us succeed. And I like that. After getting out of Techstars, I kind of wanted to go Alberts, like one Kickstarter, raise three million dollars, like yeah. international brand overnight, right? And we still have aspirations to be international brand like you know and, and we are you could say that we are because we sell internationally that's like the cheap way i want to be a house sure. man all it lives and to be associated with all these things that i told you all that being said kickstarter's been instrumental i guess kind of bring yeah. it back to that thing like these backers have been loyal we've got another campaign coming up 
Um, we're launching our fourth product and it is aspirational and it's a jacket and it's expensive and it's very cool. Um, yeah. I feel like, I mean, you hit on almost every major takeaway that you could possibly have hit on, right? Like build something for, for yourself that you know you're going to want and need. When you find product market fit, run for it. You know, keep keep just lean in. Take what you do and do it the best you can and just focus on doing that one thing great. It's like all these lessons of entrepreneurship like captured in one little story right there. <laughs> It's nice looking back and being able to frame something. Yeah, it wasn't always. No, it's that, never. It, you know, it is. It is true. It is accurate. It's just like you know, it wasn't as intentional at the no. time as it may seem. No, back, you know, it's a little messier. Thinking about both the market and also the the product itself, it's an outdoors product. It's a. You talk about the design and its intentionality. You talk about sustainability as the core value, but apparel and fashion tend to have a, a pretty rough reputation when it comes to sustainability generally. Although I know a lot of folks are trying to clean that up. Here you are kind of leading with, you know, a product that is is built, the solutions built into it. Um, and I want to hear you talk a little bit about the your thoughts on the, the apparel industry and sustainability in general. Yeah, it's, that's a good question. And it's incredibly nuanced. And I think I want to, to put that caveat on this before I say anything is that sustainability is a, it's a huge word. It's not, there is no one right answer. It's a, it's a package of answers. Right. And so, you know, the benefit of designing for the outdoor consumer is that they are a sustainability minded customer group, just almost yeah. by definition, the water we swim in from like brand competitors in our space, everybody's doing something sustainable. That's not a differentiator in outdoor, right? Like it's, it, yeah. it, it is, and it, you know, it's, we can do it a different way. We can do it better and we do, but like, that's why I wanted to be there. Right. I don't want to convince people that if you're using synthetics, they should be recycled. If you're using cottons, they should be organic. I want people to just know that and value it. So that's one advantage and kind of a like a, a business case for for working in this industry. But where it intersects with fashion is interesting too, because fashion's aspirationally, or at least marketing side, is saying we're going to be sustainable. We're going to do all of these things. And the word greenwashing comes up a lot, rightfully yeah. so, because if it's fast fashion, right? If this this thing that is this kind of mindless consumption of seasonal trends and, and companies pushing this stuff out with the full intention that it's going to be in a landfill in six months. Like not, maybe not intention, but acceptance that it's a seasonal trend. It's yeah. just it's as cheap as it can be made. Now they're just shifting yeah. to a sustainable material, which is not a bad thing. Like it's good. If they're going to do that using a recycled poly or, or organic cotton or, or like, you know, responsibly grown uh, cottons, is good but the core problem is still that they're making kind of cheap clothing that's not made to last that's built on seasonal yeah. cycle demand trends that are like one month long so to me that's where it goes back to this idea of uh from the consumer side this mindset of intentional purchasing of things that are meaning something to you that facilitate something in your life and then like you start there and then you say, okay, if I can, if I can afford it and I can have the time, I'm trying to buy something the best of that, like the highest quality I can or the highest quality I, I can afford. And then from the brand side, it's putting those things out. It's building something with intention yeah. to last a long time and do its job well. I mean, we can turn a sample on, we can get a product to market really fast if we wanted to. It's just not going to be very good. Right. <laughs> and to us, that's not a good, like I can't, I can't do that. Right. But a lot of these other companies can and they've you know got systems that make sure that it's not awful, right? It comes out, it's fine um, for the most part. Clothing has gotten better. That's a loaded statement too, right? Like old clothes are that are high quality are great, but like the standard of just kind of clothing construction, even right. mass produced, is higher than it used to be, just because we've figured it out. Some operations guy and process 
people have, have really got it down to an art or a science at this point. Do you think the path continues towards better <laughs> steps? Or do you fear that we're kind of plateaued with how the standard average marginal, you know, company is going to treat apparel companies going to treat sustainability and their work in it. No. So I, I, am pessimistic about the thought of, of major fast fashion companies shifting their business model. Okay. I'm not, I'm not optimistic about that. I am optimistic about a consumer group that is growing fast. And especially now, like, like since there's been a shift somewhat subsurface to above surface of this kind of thinking in the last year or so. And it's led a lot by the younger generation, Gen Z, that's like rediscovered things like thrifting and upcycling and mending. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is the way. Yeah. And it, the more that becomes mainstream, the more I think that actually does have an impact. Part of my pessimism again is like this is inherently against I was gonna say it's inherently against capitalism, right? Like this idea of like just like kind of growth of consumer spending driving most most of the economy. I just think we can replace the crappy ones with better ones. And if we can do that, if a new if a new kind of like guard of companies comes up built on better values, even if they're still they're there to make money, that's not a bad thing. People need jobs. Yeah. Like, I'm not trying to change capitalism or change the way we do business. I just want to say that you can do business a better way. And if we do that enough, then it kind of solves the problem. Not, okay, it doesn't solve the problem. It makes the problem a little less. Well, and arguably, there's a version of capitalism which is sustainable over the very long term. Like a long-term vision of capitalism where companies are doing good because they know that it serves them and the world and the community and their customers all together. They're not doing penance for what they're doing. They're building products that actually serve the community and all their stakeholders, right? Like that's, a, I don't know, that's my optimistic version of what is possible. Well, I think it is. Right and that's where the consumer comes into play. Like I think that yep. it is possible and smart to take care of your customers and the planet in which you operate. It's good for business. But it's a long-term view. It's not always good for business that week or that month or that quarter. That's where actually I was getting to the consumer side. There is a subset of people or a, kind of a zeitgeist idea that why should I worry about what I do? What I do doesn't make an impact. But the inherent flaw in that is that, yes, what I do doesn't make a difference. But what I do makes a difference on my neighbor. What I do makes a difference on my friends and the way they think about things. And yeah. that happens enough, the consumer mindset shifts to this, and then companies will react. They, they can't not. If yeah. we accept this low bar of sustainability and say, like, oh, well, you know, I don't care. I'm going to stop buying this stuff because it's not making a difference, then that's a signal to the companies that they don't need to do it anymore. And so it's kind yeah. of a catch-22. No, you don't make a difference. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But you actually, collectively, we do. What you're talking about feels closely related to a term you've brought up before hedonistic sustainability. So first of all, I love this term. Could you explain how you first learned about it and what it means? Yeah, that one's awesome. And that's one of my favorite terms ever. It's that basically the idea is that sustainability doesn't mean that it's going to be bad. Like sustainability sometimes has a connotation of like Spartan and utilitarian and like gray, right? And like that is not true in any way, shape or form. There's no reason that anything sustainable needs to be less nice or less enjoyable. Yeah. And so this concept of hedonistic sustainability, I actually found it or, or came upon it on like a, a Netflix documentary on an architect from somewhere in the Scandinavian region. And he, he came up with this thing. He was, he was, and I'm sure someone who listeners is going to know exactly what it is or go find it. I don't remember what it was called. It's Ingalls. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There you go. So like he was building public works thing, like, you know, like I forget what it was like, you know, 
things for the government. And he was basically like, I can build these things beautifully for the same amount of money and more sustainably than, than if I didn't. And all the reason, the only shift in that is the design and the intent. Yep. That's it. Right. And you actually had two phrases or terms that I remember really loving. The first was hedonistic sustainability, but the second was an acronym, BHAG or B-H-A-G when spelled out. So could you define that uh, in your own words and tell us what it means to you? Big, hairy, audacious goals. They are designed, and you can tell by the name, to be aspirational, to be somewhat unrealistic. But they're designed to be a North Star. And so that's where we say, like, we want one pair of our pants, your clothing, to equal three that never had to get made. Okay. That may happen on a micro level, right? Like, then that's like what, you know, our customers that really buy into what we do, they buy one pair of our pants and they wear it for years. Like, that is happening on a micro level, but on a macro level, we want that to be the case. That's an audacious goal. You know, we want to be, a, we say we want to be a household name as a brand, right? Like, that's saying that we want to be like Coca Cola and Levi's, right? Yeah. But we do. And like, and we won't be there tomorrow. We may never get there. That's fine. You know, it's just like that, that is our North star. Like when we operate and when we talk to customers, we say we need to do it as if we're, we're already there. And that's that yeah. concept of BHAGs. That's good. I like that we've got a good example of how you actually put it into practice. I think that's actually a really cool example. Well, and going back to the, you know, consumer will drive change point that you made earlier. If we can make products that are sustainable, but that are better than the alternative products, like that's answers all of the questions, checks all the boxes, right? Right. So I found and, and read your, your post on LinkedIn where you are really transparent and, and really raw and honest with, with your history, with your background, with your story. I, I want to hear how you felt as you wrote that and then how you felt as you hit pressed post. Like, What was going through your mind? How are you physically feeling? How did you get to that point to be able to do that? And then what happened right after? Yeah. So for context, I had just been passed up for an opportunity to pitch investment and lives in on, on national TV to a pretty well-known investor TV star kind of guy. And it, the reason I've been passed up is because of my criminal past. They said, we just can't get comfortable with it. And I told him, you know, and it, 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 just, yeah. it is what it is. Right. And then and I had, this suspicion that many of the no's that I'd gotten in the past, which a lot of no's for investing in an apparel company are completely legitimate, but some of them were because of that. And they just didn't tell me this one. They told me, and I just had this, 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 this overwhelming drive to not be surprised by that ever again. And the way I thought I could do that is to get it out in the world on my terms, tell the real story and not, not glorify it. Just tell it like it is. Um, and then try to focus it on where I've been since then and say, like, if someone's going to close a door on me for this, it's going to be closed up front. I'll walk up to it closed and know to go somewhere else. And that's what that was the headspace I was in when I wrote it. So I kind of wrote it stream of consciousness. I was working with a marketing firm on something else and this really great copywriter I was working with. And I actually kind of like said, hey, would you look at this? Um, and the reason was I had written a very long one. And the, the, this is where it kind of hits reality. LinkedIn won't let you post as a character limit on like a post. And I was <laughs> yeah. not able to synthesize it from the long thing to the short thing. And I was like, hey, can you just help me write this shorter? And she helped me get that into a shorter thing. And, and then that made me be like, oh, okay, I can, I can publish this. Like, this is, this is good. And so from there to when I actually pushed it, there was, I think, a couple of weeks where I just didn't, I just could not push the go button. Yeah. Like, 
it was like okay, I've never decided told. or well, I decided it's just like I just like didn't want to like I was just hesitant I could, like get yeah. there and like shake my hands with chick and I, like I'm just not going to do it. Where I knew I was going to, I just couldn't do it right then. And it was just really just because I, you know, I had never hidden this information from people, but I was also not just like waving a flag or telling everybody when I first met up. And that 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 the unfortunate part of that is that time and time again, I had gotten down a road of a relationship with someone not. You know, not that kind of relationship, like a business relationship where sure. like I hadn't said it yet. I hadn't told them, but we'd kind of started working. And then I felt dishonest. Right. You know, because it just hadn't, the opportunity hadn't presented itself. So I just, one day I kind of thought, like, okay, I need to do it early in the morning, right? So we'll see it. And I'm just, I'm just going to go. So I hit, I hit go and it was a big relief. I don't remember exactly how long it was, but I didn't look at it. I didn't like monitor the posts for a little bit. Um, and I came back and it was like just on its way to, virality i guess and it never like you know a real viral post on linkedin goes like millions of views right like i think mine had like a hundred thousand or something like that but like had hundreds of comments like it definitely made its rounds through like the community of entrepreneurship and investment and all that kind of stuff and and just brought an incredible amount of support not one bit of negativity not even the slightest bit just like a outpouring of of love and support and that just made me feel incredibly good and then then since then even at that point like it's just continued to to be something that helps fill me up yeah the effect my story had on people it's a good segue talk about some of the a couple of big like i said visionary questions and the first is you talk about recognizing the effect that your post had on people i'm curious what you hope your legacy is for your kids for future generations what do you want to look back on in life and say that's what i hope my kids see in me or, or my friends or community, like what do you want your legacy to be? It's a big question. Legacy. I don't know if I can describe it particularly in, in detail, but I do want people to say that, that I was a good person, right? That like, that I created some value that I was good to people and those kind yeah. of things. Right. And I guess if I, you know, like if I want my kids to learn something, right? Like one lesson is that nothing is really a roadblock. Like, it can look really bad. It can look like you're going to spend 40 years in prison. Yeah. But it's not always that bad. Like there's it's typically, yeah. and I, I know this is not always the case. People are in terrible situations all over the world that they'll never get out of. But for the most part, things are typically not as bad as they seem. The outcome you're envisioning is typically not as bad as it's going to be, right? Like you can, you can work through some things. And that's one thing I think is that people need to, to understand. And I hope my kids understand one day. Last question. Many days, many weeks, the headlines that, that dominate, they're a little depressing. <laughs> they're dark sometimes. And in particular, in the outdoors world, the impacts of the changing climate are real and they're scary. And, and we you know, are reminded of that through extreme weather events, droughts or floods or anything. So for many people I know, it becomes daunting and, and it's easy to disengage you know, when faced with kind of those big challenges in front of us as a as a world. And I'm curious what you do or how you think about inspiring folks to believe that they can do something better for the world. They can do good and make a difference. Their one purchase might not do it, but when they start and someone else does, you know, the collective makes a difference. How do you defeat defeatism? I concentrate on what I can control. I can't control the way our our government is treating climate change right now but then they think back like what i can't control i can build a business 
that is built on these ideals that can that can be a platform to talk about our beliefs on the solution and that might get listened to one day i might get the right congressman yeah. that popped up on an instagram ad and bought our pants and got on our blog and figured something out that might actually shift a little bit of thinking that's aspirational but like that's realistic and so that's where i concentrate on like what can i do and it goes back even from the business like how can i make my day better like am I, how can i make me better all this is aspirational it's a great answer. Tell folks where to go to find out more, um, to see stuff, to see products, to purchase stuff. What's the best way to find you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, our website is www.livesn.com, L-I-V-S-N.com. Pretty easy. Um, our Instagram is where we're most active as far as social. Um, we're not very good TikTokers or Twitter tweeters <laughs> at Lives and Designs, so L-I-V-S-N and Designs, plural. Awesome. And then if you do find yourself on our website, there's... Like we call it the well-worn blog. You know, there's a blog that is not an afterthought to us. Like there's a lot in there. Awesome. That's a good place to kind of go and, and explore the brand a little bit. Cool. Thank you so much, Andrew. That was a really fun conversation. Before we end, an important reminder for everybody. If you or someone you love is struggling with addiction, please call 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. Big thanks to Andrew for today's conversation and for being so open with us. Consensus in Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. This episode is produced by Will Gatchel, Chandler Bramstead, Jeff Rock. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. And special thanks to Consensus Creative Director, Kate Tucker, and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week.